I'm Brendan McShane, the 2020 Nobleman Scholar, and this is the Canada's History Podcast. With the 2020 United States federal election occurring today, we have a perfect opportunity to reflect on the history of what American elections mean to Canadians and the dynamics between Canadian and American leaders. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Alan Priest, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Western Ontario, who is currently completing his doctoral dissertation. His research explores the linkages between archetypes of masculinity and their influence over the electoral politics of Canada and the United States throughout the early Cold War period. Thanks for joining me, Alan. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Historically, what have American elections meant for and meant to Canadians? Well, when I was thinking about this question today, the one thing that kind of recurs to my mind is our Prime Minister's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, once described the relationship between Canada and the United States sort of like a mouse sitting beside a sleeping elephant, that every twitch and grumble that goes on in the United States sort of reverberates through our society. And we're seeing it today, especially, that there is evident concern, regardless of who wins, what the foreign policy outcomes will be and what the bilateral relationship outcomes will be. So I think Canada is always kind of watching to see who the American president will be, because it can hinge not only on their policy, but also on personalities. If they're more blustering, like the current president, but that's certainly not unusual. There's been tenuous relationships between American presidents and Canadian prime ministers, but you've also had times where they've got along really well. Looking back at the history of American elections, do you think there was one that was particularly impactful, or perhaps more impactful, than many Canadians realize? Yeah, so I'm a little bit biased on this one just because of uh, the nature and time period of my research, but I'm going to point to the 1960 election in the United States. And the reason being, Canada had elected John Diefenbaker in 1958 to a massive majority, and he was hugely popular, and he spoke of ideas of, you know, a new frontier for Canada, which he then begrudgingly accused Kennedy of ripping off. I'm not so sure about that. I think it was just a bit of a coincidence. But Diefenbaker was hugely popular with Canadians and, you know, had this soaring oratory and his uh, style was described as evangelical and, and all of that. And two years later, along comes JFK. And JFK is charismatic and intellectual and has a real draw for Canadians. You know, in 1961, he comes here and Canadians in Ottawa turn out in droves to see him. And a lot of people north of the border were really energized by this American president. It actually took some spotlight away from John Diefenbaker and it made him a little bitter. He actually said at one point when Kennedy was visiting, you know, I hope this man never comes north of the border and runs against me. But the two men didn't get along either. And some of that was driven by jealousy and some of that was just driven by clashing personalities. Kennedy saw Diefenbaker as indecisive. So obviously a big thing that was going on at that time was America, and this was this preceded the Kennedy administration. Eisenhower was pushing it with Diefenbaker too, but they wanted us to take nuclear warheads to arm defensive weapons. Diefenbaker hemmed and hawed and was worried about Canadian public opinion, although he really didn't need to be. Canadians were usually on board despite the mail that he was getting. But he hemmed and hawed, and Kennedy came to see him as indecisive. And he seemed to, Diefenbaker, I mean, seemed to feel that Kennedy was trying to push Canada 
around. So I would really identify they're probably the most famous rift between a Canadian prime minister and an American president. And I also have a really kind of weird, funny story between the two of them that I love in that when Diefenbaker visited the White House in February 1961, Kennedy had this sailfish mounted on the wall. Both men loved fishing. And he turned to Diefenbaker and said, have you ever seen anything, a fish bigger than this? And Diefenbaker goes, actually, yes, I caught a marlin in Jamaica recently, and it was 140 pounds. And, And Kennedy looks at him and goes, no, you didn't. So Diefenbaker, of course, when Kennedy returned the visit in May 1961, had the marlin stuffed and mounted on the wall and pointed it out to Kennedy and went, this is what I caught. And for good measure, he had a few paintings of naval battles in the War of 1812 highlighted where Canada won. So it was definitely an acrimonious relationship and a little bit of uh, peacocking between them as well. But really what I would boil it down to with the 1960 election and what it meant to Canada was it really took some of the glisten off of Diefenbaker and really then highlighted a differing leadership style. He was far more indecisive and Kennedy was far more resolute. And when Canadians had that contrast, it didn't look so good for Diefenbaker. That's some amusing friction between Diefenbaker and Kennedy. Do you have an example of a Canadian prime minister and American president that were more harmonious and cooperative? So I think the benchmark, honestly, is between uh, Mackenzie King and Franklin Roosevelt. So Mackenzie King came back to power in 1935, and FDR had been in office for about two years at that point. Obviously, these were men who were dealing with an economy struggling to recover from a depression. There were storm clouds in these years gathering in Europe. But Mackenzie King only about two weeks after he came back to office, was down at the White House meeting with FDR. The two men really bonded over the fact that they both went to Harvard. Mackenzie King, I believe, was the senior there and went a few years before FDR, and then FDR got there a little bit later. I know that there was uh, you know, visits by Mackenzie King where he would stay over at the White House, and they got along really well. I think an interesting point in Canadian-American relations is probably when Roosevelt came and actually spoke at Queen's University in August of 1938. And he talked potentially because of the gathering storm, but also the closeness between the two leaders of the fact, and I'll quote him here. So the quote is, I give you the assurance that the people of the United States will not stand idly by if domination of Canadian soil is threatened by any other empire. And it's come to be known as the idly by speech. And it really kind of set up a new set of relations between Canada and the United States, that America was guaranteeing our security in the event that Britain potentially fell during the Second World War. And really for a few years there, especially before America entered the war in uh, late 1941, there was a relationship between King and Roosevelt that saw our defenses get closer together under the Ogdensburg Agreement, our economies get closer in cooperation under the Hyde Park Declaration, where essentially we provided helped provide lend-lease to Britain. And for a while there, Churchill referred to Mackenzie King in Canada as kind of serving a linchpin role between the two powers. But as America entered the war and became sort of this global power in its own right, and you begin to see sort of big power conferences between the UK and the US and the USSR, you begin to actually see King get pushed down a little bit, Canada get pushed back a little bit as the United States rises and becomes less isolationist. And that, you know, relationship, while strong, begins to fall a little bit to the back burner as Roosevelt has other things to take his mind elsewhere. And 
that linchpin role that Canada was playing at the beginning becomes lessened once the United States and the United Kingdom can have more direct relations with each other once America was out of its isolationist sentiments. And it makes me think of when you think of the relationship between the UK prime minister and the American president and the Canadian prime minister and the American president. Most presidents since Harry Truman have written an autobiography or multiple volume autobiographies. And if you flip to the indexes, very, very rarely will the Canadian prime minister be mentioned more than once or twice, whereas the UK prime minister receives a lot of attention throughout sort of the coming years, throughout the Cold War, throughout the post-war period. On that note, of the unique dynamics between Canadian and American leaders, do you have any more anecdotes or insights you'd like to share? Yeah, so just to sort of do a really casual review, in the 1950s, you know, we get Eisenhower elected in the United States, and we get Louis St. Laurent, who's in power in Canada from 1948. And their relationship is really interesting. Both men had a leadership style that kind of ran their nations like the chairman of the board. They were a little standoffish. They definitely were in charge, there's no doubt about that, but they trusted their lieutenants to carry out their positions within cabinet. And both men kind of provided this weird grandfatherly reassurance to the public in a very scary, increasingly tense time as nuclear weapons become more powerful, the Cold War seems to become a little bit more unstable. And that's actually what I'm studying right now is looking at, you know, masculinity politics and how those things impacted elections. But these two men were kind of known as country club cousins, to quote, I believe it was historian Lawrence Martin, who referred to them as such, where they weren't super close, but they got together. They were able to sort of hammer out what was best for the two nations. And there's a really famous picture of them, actually, in late 1956, golfing at Augusta National Golf Course. And, And they totally embody that country club vibe when you take a look at it. The other one I'll jump to, and then uh, this might be the last one, but Nixon and Pierre Elliott Trudeau is a really interesting one as well. And actually, I should jump back to Pearson and Johnson, but I'll start with Nixon and Trudeau in that they really didn't get along. Nixon once referred to Trudeau as a pompous egghead. He was also later caught on tape referring to a Canadian prime minister as an asshole. I'm not sure if I can say that on interview. But Trudeau kind of had that same sort of progressivism and natural calm that Kennedy possessed, and it brought up a lot of unresolved feelings and that made Nixon bristle. At the same time, the fact that he thought Trudeau was an egghead um, tells me within my research that he likely viewed Trudeau as somebody who was weak and more effeminate. Nixon had a really rigid set of stereotypical gender ideals that were, were kind of stuck in the 50s. But nonetheless, Trudeau had a really good way of getting along with Nixon. You know, when he found out that Nixon called him an asshole, Trudeau said something along the lines of, you know, I've been called worse by better. And Trudeau wasn't a stranger to controversy over swearing with his famous fuddle-duddle incident in Parliament. I mentioned Pearson and Johnson, so I'll lastly just kind of jump really quick back to them. Pearson came to power at the end of Kennedy's term just before he was tragically assassinated. And the two men got along really well. They were both intellectuals. And it would have been really interesting to see what a Pearson-Kennedy relationship would have been like going into the mid to late 60s. But instead, Johnson came to power. He succeeded Kennedy as his vice president. And Johnson is very famous for his brash, no-nonsense leadership style. And Pearson 
ever the diplomat and Nobel Peace Prize winner, was publicly critical of America's escalating role in Vietnam. And he actually went into the United States and at a speech at Temple University in 65, was very critical of Johnson's escalation of the Vietnam War, which actually led to a uh, meeting at Camp David shortly thereafter, where he actually lifted Pearson up by the lapels and shook him. Essentially, the only case I'm aware of of an American president potentially assaulting a Canadian prime minister, but lifted him up by the lapels and shook him and basically said something along the lines of, you know, you don't come into my house and and piss on my rug. The house being, you know, a metaphor for the United States. And yeah, the two men really, really obviously didn't see eye to eye in foreign policy. Johnson obviously feeling need to escalate Vietnam because of geopolitical tensions and and Pearson looking more for some kind of resolution there. I think that will give listeners a really great overview of many of the intriguing dynamics between Canadian and American leaders throughout history. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. The last thing I'll probably add is, you know, we look at the current state of affairs and it's one of those things where, you know, we might think the relations are tense now, but based on some of the historical anecdotes and things like that, it's actually been a relatively, in my view, if not calm for years, I think it's been handled relatively interestingly in that our current prime minister regardless of political opinion, is very tactful in not jumping to the bait at times. And I saw that most recently when there was the issue in the United States of of the White House tear gassing protesters, and they asked the uh, prime minister what his thoughts were on that. He took 21 seconds just kind of staring at the camera before responding and then, you know, gave a very sort of neutral answer. But in those 21 seconds, you could see, you know, the gears in his mind turning and him thinking about, you know, what can I say? What can I not say? And I think as much as there's been a lot of chaos in Canadian-American relations in the last few years, I think we've had more chaotic times. And maybe there's a little bit of hope there that regardless of what happens, this relationship has endured between leaders who get along much worse than Trudeau and Trump, and it's endured. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. When we look at the history, there's been really great times between the two leaders, and there's been really tenuous times between the two leaders. But what kind of endures beyond that is the relationship between the two nations, regardless of who's in office. That provides some great context on the future of Canada and the United States working together. I really appreciate you chatting with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much.